Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we are back with another Keywords episode with the one and only Jillian Isaac. But before we start, I have a couple announcements. So the search for the ACRAC intern continues, though it is getting narrowed down. I'm going to be doing some interviews over the next week or so, and probably will be making a decision soon. So if you still want to submit an application, you can, but time is running out. Also, uh, check out the new logo if you haven't already. We have chosen one, and it's up on the site at ACRAC.com. And finally, uh, there's a fantastic new podcast out from one of the residents at MGH in Boston called Depth of Anesthesia. You can check it out at depthofanesthesia.com. The resident doing this is David Howe, and he does a really, really nice job. It's really great. What they do is he brings on guests. So far, they've been uh, MGH faculty, obviously fantastic people, and they look at a claim that's made in anesthesia. So, uh, for example, the first one, they looked at the idea that you should always verify that you can mask ventilate before you give paralytic. That's a claim that a lot of people believe. And then they do a very deep dive into the evidence behind that claim and whether or not the evidence backs it up. So I find it fantastic. I really enjoy it. And I highly recommend that you check it out, depthofanesthesia.com. And I think what we're going to do is actually put that episode about checking mask ventilation before paralytic on the ACRAC feed. So stay tuned. I think you'll see that pop up in your regular ACRAC feed. You can check that episode out if you like it, which I think you will then you can go to depthofanesthesia.com and check out even more of the great stuff they've got going on over there. Okay, so let's jump in with our third keyword episode. Today we're going to talk first about spinal anesthesia, what you need to know specifically for the basic exam. So the basic stuff about spinal anesthesia, obviously we could do many episodes on all the different details of spinal anesthesia, but this will be the basics of spinal anesthesia, and then we're going to do Atomidate. So Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So the first topic we're going to cover today is spinal anesthesia for the basic exam. And this is what the ABA says that they want you to know for the basic exam. Indications, contraindications, sites of actions, factors influencing onset, duration, and termination of action, complications, physiological effects like GI, pulmonary, cardiac, and renal. And having gone through question books and question banks, I feel like the highest yield of these topics will be complications. So the most common one and the ones that are like life or limb threatening, and then physiological effects of spinal anesthesia. Sounds awesome. Yeah. I am looking forward to it. So as a side note, which I found really interesting is that anatomy is not listed under, so it's a spinal and has some subtopics, and they didn't list anatomy. Hmm. And then I went to the anatomy section and didn't list it there either, but I know these are fair game questions because I've seen them pop up again and again. So I know it's not in their keyword, but I'm just going to do a quick review of that. Sounds good. The most common question that you're going to see is if you're doing a spinal and or epidural from the midline approach, what layers are you going to go through? So if you're doing it midline, it'll be skin, subcutaneous tissue, supraspinous ligament, interspinous ligament, ligamentum flavum, epidural space, and then you don't want to hit the dura mater if you're doing a 
epidural, but if you're doing spinal, dura matter, and then arachnoid matter, and then you're in your CSF there. And the one that, Jillian, that I always see come up as a wrong choice there is the posterior spinal ligament. Okay. Because that's actually anterior. Right, Which right. is very confusing, but right. everybody wants to put that because it's po- it says it's called good. posterior. Right? So, <laughs> Sounds right. Uh, but you do not hit that one when right. you're doing right. You should never. You'd have to go yeah. through the bones to get Right, to yes. And then the other approach that they ask is the paramedian approach. So the paramedian approach is going to be the same, except you're not going to go through the supraspinous nor the intraspinous ligament. So it'll be skin, subcutaneous tissue, ligamentum, flavum, epidural space, dura matter, arachnoid matter, and then you're in the CSF. So this is the type of question you're going to see. It's going to sound just like this. Which of the following is the correct sequence of anatomic structures encountered when using a paramedian approach for lumbar spinal anesthesia? So we pretty much just answered this, but A is ligamentum flavum, dura matter, arachnoid matter. B is interspinous ligament, ligamentum flavum, dura matter, arachnoid matter. C is posterior longitudinal ligament, mm-hmm. your distractor answer there. Ligamentum flavum, dura matter, arachnoid matter. Um, D is anterior longitudinal ligament, ligamentum flavum, dura matter, arachnoid matter. And then E is the ligamentum flavum, dura matter, pia matter, arachnoid matter. Uh, so it would be, because we, we just covered this between A and E, because you skip the intraspinous and the supraspinous ligaments, and then you're into ligamentum flavum, and then it's dura matter, and then arachnoid comes before pia. They just left the pia off for the A. So the correct answer there is A. Um, and again, that posterior longitudinal ligament, it's very enticing because you right. think posterior and you totally. don't necessarily remember. So that's the type of question that you're going to see yep. on the anatomy. And I know it's there even though they didn't list it. And maybe I should email them and say, hey, you forgot to put this in your keywords. Yeah, I wonder if it's somewhere yeah. else maybe under some anatomy. <laughs> maybe. And I was looking in the advance. I couldn't find it. I'm sure it's there somewhere. Maybe it's it's got to be there yeah. somewhere. Regardless, you do yeah. need to know it. Right. So then the other thing they want to talk about is like uh, – Block height. So a successful spinal anesthesia, you need a block that's high enough to block sensation at the surgical site, and it needs to last for the duration of the planned procedure. And there is a lot of variability between patients. Uh, so it's important to be able to try to reliably predict block height and duration of the block, but it's a challenge. I mean, I do OB, and you could do the same dose of lidocaine the same or bupivacaine, and the height difference is really variable. So it's not always that easy to predict. But they do talk about block height and it is determined by the cephalid spread of the local anesthetic in the CSF. And there are many factors, I'm sure that you could list them off, that have been suggested that affect block height. You want to just go through them um, so off the top of your head. I know it's hard. So we'll start with characteristics of the local anesthetic. Right. So probably which one right, right. in terms of uh, – Which local. Which local you're using, any additives you're using. Uh, in terms of the patient, I'm sure it's probably their height, their weight, their gravity. Exactly. Status. All of those things. So for local anesthetics, they list pericity, dose, concentration, and the volume injected, and then – Patient characteristics, you named a bunch, but eight, weight, height, gender, pregnancy, patient position, and then technique. So site of injection, speed of injection, barbitage, direction of the needle bevel, and additions of uh, vasoconstrictors. But hands barbitage? down, barbitage? What was the... It's like barbitage when you inject and then come back and inject. Oh, like you kind of go back and forth a few times. Yeah. Right. Uh, but the most important is probably the bericity of the local anesthetic and then the patient position. So whether you're using hypobaric, hyperbaric, or isobaric... Mm-hmm. And 
and whether you're like lateral or jackknife or prone or sitting, those are probably the two that determine block height the most. So because it's so variable, it's really hard to have a black and white answer there. So the questions that you're going to see is going to be about like levels and dermatomes. So this is a question, is tingling in the fifth finger during spinal anesthesia is associated with anesthesia at which of the following dermatomes? So C4, C6, C8, T2, or T4? I'm going to go with C8. Exactly. It's C8. So that's what you're going to see is they're going to talk about block height, but they can't really go into the factors because there's so much gray area in that. So it'll be the height of the block. So then it goes into onset. Uh, Regardless of what local is used, most patients can sense the onset of the spinal block within a few minutes after the injection. Of course, it's going to vary based on which local you use. So lidocaine tends to reach a peach peak block effect between 10 and 15 minutes, and then tetracaine and bupivacaine take a little longer and can actually have to be 20 minutes for the peak block height. Uh, so a couple questions about this, talking about block height, is which of the following neural functions demonstrates the highest segmental block after spinal anesthesia? And this is a question that comes up again and again. So A, afferent sympathetic activity, B, proprioception, C, sharp pain perception, D, temperature sensation, E, touch sensation. I'm going to go with A. Yeah. So the highest part of the block is going to be your sympathectomy, and then the next highest will be your sensory, and then your third highest will be the motor, and they like that question. It comes up almost every year. And the next question I have is just like it. Is when performing a single-shot spinal anesthetic, the level of block for motor, sensory, and sympathetic block differs often by at least two dermatomes. Which of the following sequences is correct from the highest to the lowest level of the block? So pretty much the exact same question, just in a different way. So A, sensory, sympathetic, motor. B, sympathetic, sensory, motor. C, sympathetic, motor, sensory. D, sensory, motor, sympathetic. Right. So as you said, it's going to be sympathetic, sensory, then motor. Right. And that's really just saying which nerves are the most sensitive, right? Essentially, the the sympathetic are going to get you're going to reach the highest because those right, are the right, sensitive. and because they run around the outside of the nerve, and then you have the sensory fibers in the motor are more toward the inside. Right. So based on your concentration gradient, the way in. they're going as it goes in, exactly, right. yeah. So those are type of questions about onset, and then for duration of the block, it's going to recede cephalad to caudad. The duration is mostly determined by your local anesthetic. Uh, for bupivacaine, it's about a 90 to 140 minute two dermatome regression time, and for chlorpocaine, it's much quicker. It's about 30 to 50 minutes. And drug dose, block height, and if you've added an adrenergic agonist like epinephrine or clonidine also affect the duration of your height. Uh, so the questions you're going to see about that is which of the following findings best indicates complete resolution of spinal anesthesia? So the options are ability to ambulate, which is A, B, ability to urinate, C, perianal pinprick sensation, D, pain at the surgical site, and E, proprioception of the big toe. So I think this is getting at that same question you asked before of kind of which, where are you going to, um, what will last the longest or what's the most sensitive, and that's going to be probably the sympathetics which affect the urination. Right. And it's also like involves S2, 3, 4, and 5. Mm. So you're getting down to those sacral roots. So if you can urinate and you're using multiple nerves from multiple systems, you're at a part where your spinal is pretty much worn off. And the other question you'll see about that is the ability to urinate is like the last thing to come back usually. So people have had spinals. They really should not be leaving the hospital, especially like in outpatient settings, until they've actually been able to use the bathroom. And mm. that's the one thing that will hold people in the PACU frequently, especially in like the outpatient centers is the inability to urinate. Yeah. So you'll see that one too. So then effects. Uh, so we'll talk about cardiovascular effects. What do you remember? I know you don't do OB often, but. 
Uh, you so just from right? a spinal, yeah. Right, yeah. So a uh, spinal can. It depends, of course, on how high it gets. But you certainly, if you take out the sympathetics, right, you can get the loss of the tachycardic response to hypotension. So you can see some bradycardia. Um, you can obviously see hypotension uh, as you uh, lose your sympathetic vasoconstriction. And those are the two main cardiovascular effects that I think of. <laughs> Good work, Jed. Uh, so you're right. Uh, so you get hypotension that's very common. It's from the l- blockade of the sympathetic efferents. And so you're going to get arterial and venodilation, which in and of itself will cause hypotension, but it also leads to a decrease in preload and afterload, which kind of compounds the hypotension. And then if you're getting a higher block, like you need to be in the abdomen, like in a cesarean section, and you need to get up to like a T4 level, you can get a sympathectomy of the cardioaccelerator fibers, which are from T1 to T4, which can cause bradycardia, but it can be profound. Mm. And then it depends on what you read, but about one out of 10,000 spinals can actually result in asystole. Wow. Yeah. From that knocking out of the sympathetic system. And those are questions that you're going to see on the test. And every year the ABA sends out knowledge deficits for each program. So questions that a lot of our residents missed. And I remember a few years ago, this was one that our residents consistently missed. So it's a 30-year-old man received spinal anesthesia to the level of T4, so a higher level. Mm -hmm. 10 minutes later, so about when the peak onset of the block is coming in, heart rate and blood pressure abruptly decreased to 30 beats per minute, and his blood pressure drops to 60 over 25. The most appropriate management is administration of which of the following drugs? A, atropine, B, epinephrine, C, isoproteranol, D, I don't even know how to say it, metaraminol, I don't even know what that is, and Mm. E, phenylephrine. I'm going to say it's not metanarrow. <laughs> I would um, say nutty. <laughs> I, I think epinephrine is how you, you got to Yeah. Go there. So I do think people see that bradycardia and they just think atropine or glycopyrrolate. That's the drug that they pick. But the board answer, it may be a little different than we actually do in the operating room. The board answer is when you see that profound bradycardia with hypotension leading maybe towards asystole, you're supposed to grab the epi. And that's supposed to be your first, first dose. Right. So that was the knowledge gap in our program a few years ago. And that makes sense to me, right? Because you are treating both vasodilation and and uh, the bradycardia, and because you want to replace that sympathetic, uh, it's not a cholinergic problem, it's a sympathetic problem. So right, replacing right. that makes sense. Right. And ephedrine just takes too long because yeah. waiting those three minutes when someone's hypotensive is a long time for that indirect agonist to work. And just to be clear, I, I would not give a milligram of epinephrine if they were not <laughs> asystolic, uh, or I'm sorry, if they were not uh, in a cardiac arrest. But using the drug epinephrine probably in the 10 to 20 mics at a time range is probably the approach. And the truth is, if it were me in the operating room and I saw someone getting bradycardic and the blood pressure going down, I would probably start with glycopyrrolate, ephedrine, phenylephrine, and not necessarily reach for the epi. But I'm just saying this is the classic question that you're going to see and the answer that they want is epinephrine, even though it might not be your first choice and what you're doing in the operating room. Fair enough. Uh, so then respiratory changes, a higher block can impair ventilatory functions that require active exhalation. So you've kind of blocked your chest wall. So you breathe in, your diaphragm's working fine, but your chest wall, your breathing out is affected. So you can get decreases in ERV, decreases in peak expiratory flow, and a decrease in maximum ven- minute ventilation, but your tidal volume should remain the same because your diaphragm's working, so you should be able to bring in the tidal volume. It's just your ability to get it out. Okay. And then a lot of patients complain of dyspnea. It's really common because now your chest wall is numb, and you don't have that sensation of your chest wall moving, and it really panics patients. So I always let them know ahead of time that that's a really common sensation and the reason why 
it's happening yeah. and hopefully they don't panic when they feel it. So the questions that you see about that is a healthy 24-year-old woman is undergoing knee arthroscopy. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Is that right? I say arthroscopy. I was like, that's not right. (laughs) With spinal anesthesia to a level of T4, which of the following findings is least likely? So decreased heart rate. Is that like, that's more likely. We just talked about about it. Yeah. Decreased hepatic blood flow. Well, if you have decreased uh, circulatory volume, you can get decreased hepatic blood flow. Yeah. From the hypotension, the sympathectomy. Decreased mean arterial pressure. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, Decreased tidal volume. So you just told us that probably not. That's one. It stays the same. It's one of the ones that stay the same. And then hyperperistalsis. Yeah. So, and hyperperistalsis, uh, again, from, if you have more sympath, more parasympathetic tone, you've taken out the sympathetic tone, you can get more right. peristalsis. So that's a great segue into the, the GI effects is that all the abdominal organs derive their sympathetic innervation from T6 to L2. So if you block those fibers, you get unopposed parasympathetic activity. So your bowel constricts, you get secretions, your sphincters relaxants. Also one of the reasons why you see a lot of nausea and vomiting when you have a higher level in OB with an awake patient. So those are the GI effects. And then another Another one for respiratory effects is which of the following is the most likely cause of dyspnea during spinal anesthesia to a T3 sensory level? So A, decreased abdominal muscle tone. B, decreased afferent input from the thoracic wall. C, increased dead space ventilation. D, increased interpulmonary shunting. And E, partial diaphragmatic paralysis. So I think you touched on this, you, you're losing that innervation from the chest wall. You don't get that sensation of breathing. Exactly. And that's why people complain of shortness of breath and dyspnea when they have a higher level with spinal. You shouldn't be blocking the diaphragm. The diaphragm's pretty resistant. You'd have to get... C3. Like, <laughs> you have yeah. to be pretty high. You're yeah. in pretty dangerous territory if you're up to yes. three, four, five. But uh, it's really from that afferent input from the thoracic wall. Um, so moving on to complications. So I think these are probably quote-unquote, the highest yield. And I think what the board really wants you to know is the most common complications and then the ones that are, like, life-threatening or, like, limb-threatening. So in combing through questions, hands down, the easiest ones to find were on postural puncture headache because that is probably the most common complication that we cause after a spinal anesthetic. Uh, They do ask about... Uh, risk factors. So you're more likely to have a posterior puncture headache if you're younger, if you're a female, if you're pregnant. It's also dependent on the size of the needle. So the smaller gauges, the pencil points, you're less likely. Whereas if you're using a a TUI that's like a dull, you're more likely. So that's one of the things you see questions about all the time are the risk factors. And then they're going to ask about like treatment of them. And I just pulled a couple of them right now. So which of the following factors is the least important determinant of postural puncture headache. So age of the patient, gauge of the spinal needle, gender of the patient, pregnancy, time until ambulation. So I think you touched on all of those things except time to ambulation, which is probably going to be the answer there. Right. So all these things can affect whether or not you're going to have a postural puncture headache. Uh, age, so we talked about gauge of spinal needle, gender, and pregnancy. So uh, Another one here, 63-year-old woman has a knee surgery under spinal anesthesia. Two days later, she complains of a severe headache. Pain intensity is not related to posture. The least likely cause of this headache is caffeine withdrawal, A, B, viral illness, C, migraine, and D, postural puncture headache. So I think because it's not related to posture, that's a really... Uh kind of takes us much less, makes it much less likely to be a poster puncture right. headache. And I like this question because I feel like anytime anyone has a headache after spinal, you get called and everyone's really quick to diagnose the poster puncture headache, but you really need to be careful to make sure you're not missing something important like a venous vein thrombosis or a meningitis or something else. And so I always tell my residents when they're seeing patients that they need to have that at the forefront, that yes, 
it's most likely a posterior puncture headache, but you don't want to risk missing something else. And it has to be postural. Unless, yep. unless, if it's not postural, it's not a posterior puncture headache. Right. Um, and then I, there are a few more of those, but I think we have the idea there for posterior puncture headache, and it's a highly tested topic when it comes to spinal anesthesia. Uh, so then the next one is the life-threatening one. We talked about the one, the asystole after spinal, and the correct right. answer is... Give You're going to give epi, exactly. And then the next one, you can imagine the really scary one that happens depending on who you read about 0.01% of the time is uh, high spinal. Yeah. Or you're not careful, you give too much. Uh, so in high spinal, you can it's hard sometimes to parse out the profound bradycardia versus high spinal. But the high spinal gets the whole brainstem. So you're going to see the hypotension, the bradycardia, and then respiratory rest because you're going to lose that. Respiratory drive. Yeah, exactly, from the brainstem. So it's important to be able to recognize that one. So here's a question. A 19-year-old man undergoing an inguinal hernia repair. He's anesthetized with a spinal block supplemented with midazolam and fentanyl. During the procedure, he has sudden loss of consciousness, profound hypotension, bradycardia. Systolic pressure is 40 and heart rate is 30. CPR is started. The most appropriate next step is administration of... Epinephrine. Yeah, and those the choices were atropine, ephedrine, epinephrine, fumazinol, and naloxone. Right. And then it's supportive care. You're going to do vasopressors, atropine fluids, ventilatory assistance, and it will wear away. And it sounds terrible because you had brainstem anesthesia. They usually don't remember. <laughs> so it's pretty terrible to say, but usually they don't have a memory of it. Yeah. Um, I have had a couple of people who've had significantly high levels, like C345, where they were still cognizant and aware, but enough to cause respiratory depression. Mm. And that's probably, in my mind, the scarier one because they do remember it, and it's terrifying. Yeah, I bet. Uh, And then the other one are neurological injury. So this is, like, the biggest fear, I think, of patients getting, like, epidurals or spinals is they don't want neurological injury. But it's incredibly, incredibly rare. Um, Most common would be a persistent paresthesia and maybe some limited motor weakness, and it's about 0.03% of the time. So it's a really rare complication. The kind of outliers are Coda Aquina syndrome. You see that from time to time. And then uh, TNS, transient neurological symptoms, which is more associated with lidocaine. So if you don't use lidocaine, you're not likely to get TNS. So you're going to see questions about that. So this is there are a couple of good questions that I want to go through, and then we'll be done with spinal anesthesia. But So it's a 65-year-old man undergoes prostatectomy in the lithotomy position. That's key, lithotomy position. Under spinal anesthesia using bupivacaine 12 milligrams. Ten hours later, he reports his left foot is numb. Exam shows decreased pinprick sensation over the lateral dorsal aspect of the left foot. Dorsiflexion is limited. Which of the following is most likely? So I just want to point out that we are... Anytime there's any type of neurological problem after neuroaxial anesthesia, very, very quick to point fingers, it's anesthesia, it's anesthesia, but it's actually very rare that it is. It's almost always like a positioning, uh, like in a thotting position or like a left lateral decubitus position. It's usually from like a pressure or stretch injury. Right. Um, so the answers they give are A, coda aquinas syndrome which doesn't really add up to coda-equinus syndrome. You don't have the bowel and bladder function right. loss. Compression of common peroneal nerve. Sounds, sounds good. good. Yeah. Compression of the posterior tibial nerve. Um, L5 nerve root damage. It doesn't sound like a nerve root. And then stretching of the sciatic nerve. So given that it was up in lithotomy position and it's the lateral dorsal aspect of the foot, I would say it's the common peroneal nerve. Makes sense yeah. to me. So that's what you're going to see. You want to see them. The board is trying to see if you can parse out is this an epidural or spinal injury versus is this like a different type of injury? So right. you do see those questions. And I saw another one that was very similar in the lateral decubitus position, and it was a sciatic nerve compression mm-hmm. and not from the spinal anesthesia. But you will be 
thrown under the bus. <laughs> so it's important to be able to know the difference between the two. Totally. Um, and then the common element thought to be present in cases of Coda Aquina syndrome after continuous spinal anesthesia is A, use of a microcatheter, B, maldistribution of local anesthetic, C, administration of lidocaine, or D, additional of epinephrine. So probably, well, so the, the uh, microcatheter, I think, is more associated with um, when there used to be high concentrations of lidocaine given through a microcatheter, there was some damage caused that way, but not caught Aquinas syndrome specifically. Um, uh, maldistribution of local anesthetic, I think, around the cauda equina is probably what the what, what they're going yeah, for. that's exactly right. So they used to think it was microcatheters, but the idea is the microcatheter was causing this pooling right. of local, and it was that pooling and getting a really high concentration in a small area that's causing the problem. So it was the maldistribution, uh, and then the other complication that you need to know about is spinal hematoma. I know those questions come up. I didn't. I couldn't find. A, like a written board review question, but you do see them on the written boards and also the oral board. So it's important to know about that complication. So just to sum up for spinal anesthesia, really what they're going to test you about the highest yields from what I saw are the complications, the most common and the life-threatening one, and then the physiological effects of spinal. For the yep. basic, that's really what you're going to see on the test. Great. Super useful. All right. Shall we move on to Atomidate? Sure. All right. Where are we going to start? Okay, so we're going to start with Atomidate, which is a carboxylated imidazole-containing anesthetic compound. You don't need to know that at all. Um, but it's structurally unrelated to the other IV anesthetics. But like the vast majority of our IV anesthetic, it works by acting on the GABA receptors. Uh, and the question you're going to see about that is very straightforward. Which drug exerts its main CNS action by inhibiting the, and I'm going to mix it up a little bit here, the NMDA receptor? So propofol, midazolam, etomidate, ketamine. So ketamine. Ketamine, yeah. Ketamine is the outlier. So I think all of our IV agents are that are induction agents, like etomidate, barbiturate, yeah, are, um, are yeah. GABA receptor ones. So that's how you're going to see it is be that type of a question. And then the aqueous solution of Atomidate is actually unstable at physiological pH. So it's mixed with the propylene glycol, which actually has a pH of 6.9. So that's why it has a super high incidence of pain on injection, venoirritation, and hemolysis. Although there is a new lipid formula that's out that they're using in Europe that has not yet been FDA approved. Mm. Kind of like Sugamidex got used in Europe right, before it came right. here. It's kind of a similar idea. I think they're interested in the C, but uh, I think um, – now that it's less irritating, maybe they're using it a bit more. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, but the question you're going to see there is the most common reason for patients to rate anesthesia with atomidate unsatisfactory is A, post-op nausea and vomiting, B, pain on injection, C, recall of intubation, D, post-operative hiccups. Yeah, so uh, I think it's got to be uh, post-op nausea and vomiting because I know Atomidate is very likely to cause them. Yeah, and that's a re- high-yield question. It's, you're almost guaranteed to see it. It's one of the most nausea-invoking drugs that mm-hmm. we can use, which is why I think we've really gotten away from it, especially in outpatient settings because of the nausea and vomiting. Uh, but I think this is a great question because it also puts the pain on injection, which is can be pretty significant. Yep. But that's not the most... That's not what people dislike the most. They actually dislike the, the retching afterwards. Right. And I actually think that the hiccups are barbiturates. Barbiturates can yes. cause hiccups. Yeah. And I've actually – I had propofol hiccups last week. And Jayhawk, right? yeah, with my uh, July orientees, we gave propofol and they got the propofol hiccups. Nice. Yeah. And it kind of freaked the surgeon out. I was like, ah, it's just propofol hiccups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I did – I don't have it here, but I did see a question about if you had an accidental intra-arterial injection of Atomidate, what would you do? You actually just observe. Mm. So I don't have the multiple choice question, but every now and again, that will pop up. Okay. And then uh, we're probably getting to this, but 
the the other reason we've moved away from it in the intraoperative and ICU setting is, of course, the um, uh, the adrenal suppression. Yeah, I'm not quite there yet, but yeah. we we will get there. Uh, so the standard induction dose. Do you remember? So point one to point two megs per kg is what I usually think of. Yeah, point one to point two milligrams per kilogram, and then it's not uncommon to see myoclonic movements during induction with etomidate, and that's due to subcortical disinhibition and not due to seizure activity. And you can actually decrease the frequency of the myoclonus by giving an opioid or a benzodiazepine before the administration. So this is an example of a question you'll see like that is, compared with thiopental, atomidate causes A, greater histamine release, B, greater myocardial depression, C, greater myoclonic activity, D, increased seizure threshold, and E, less nausea. Yeah, so as you just said, probably the myoclonic activity. Right. So it's actually less histamine release. It, it's a good drug to, to use if people have asthma or reactive airway because mm-hmm. it doesn't cause histamine release. It's really good for people with, well, that's what they say, with um, like bad hearts or right, like trauma. Right, it's incredibly hemodynamic. Right, stable. so you have good myocardial. You don't have that myocardial depression, and you actually have more nausea than thiopental. So that's how you're going to see it tested. Um, and then the emergence time after autonomy anesthesia is dose-dependent, but it remains short even after it administration of repeated bolus doses or continuous infusions. So it's context-sensitive half-life doesn't go up and up and up like some of the other drugs we use, and that's due to redistribution. So for pharmacokinetics, it's listed as a keyword. I'm just going to say it's described by a three-compartmental open model. I think if you know that, that's probably more than enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has a high clearance rate uh, due to extensive hydrolysis in the liver and inactive metabolites. So it's not one of the drugs that you have to worry about an active uh, metabolite there. So like barbiturates, atomidate, they decrease your cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption in the brain, also decreases uh, cerebral blood flow and decreases ICP. However, because you have such good hemodynamic stability, even though you decrease ICP and cerebral blood flow, you'll actually maintain adequate uh, cerebral perfusion pressures. Uh-huh. So it's not a bad drug in like neurosurgery, um, at least from what the textbooks are still saying. So a couple questions like you're going to see about that is which of the following drugs increases cerebral blood flow while decreasing cerebral metabolic rate? So A, atomidate, B, fentanyl, C, isoflurane, D, lidocaine, E, midazolam. Yeah, I think it's the inhaled anesthetics. It is, right. So they all will increase cerebral blood flow while decreasing cerebral metabolic rate, where we said with atomidate, it decreases both. Mm -hmm. But that's the type of question you'll see for atomidate. And then another one that's similar, if I can find it really quick, is cerebral blood flow is decreased by each of the following except. So it's atomidate, midazolam, nitrous oxide, increased minute ventilation, and positive end expiratory pressure. And I think the answer there is nitric oxide. Yeah. So that's how you're going to see atomidate tested. They do like the effects. And in general, for the induction drugs and the um, volatile anesthetics, they like asking questions about effects on cerebral blood flow, cerebral perfusion pressure, and the metabolic oxygen consumption that it causes. Uh, And getting back to what you were talking about, and I'm sure you know much more about this than I do because you're in the ICU setting, but... um, it has an atomidate has an inhibitory effect on adrenal cortical synthetic function, right. and there's a real classic paper. I get asked a lot by anesthesia residents about these like classic papers, but this is one of them that I think you should know. It's by Wagner, White, and Kahn. It was published in '84 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was showing the inhibition of adrenal steroidogenesis by the anesthetic atomidate. So it's kind of the the paper that showed us that that was happening. So you do get questions about that. Ready? A single dose of atomidate for induction of anesthesia will cause A, adrenal cortical suppression, B, decreased skeletal muscle tone, C, hypotension, D, increased airway activity, and E, tachycardia. 
Right. So a single dose does call that, cause that adrenal suppression. It's yeah. interestingly hasn't really been shown to be clinically significant at one dose, maybe outside of severe sepsis or septic shock. But uh, in healthy patients, uh, one dose, while it does decrease adrenal, uh, while it does cause adrenal suppression, does not have any clinical significance that we know of. Right. And according to Barish, that adrenal suppression can actually last up to five to eight hours after, which is surprising. But to run through these other ones is you're going to have increased skeletal muscle tone. You actually won't have hypotension. You should remain uh, hemodynamically stable. You actually have decreased airway activity because you don't have that histamine release and you should not see tachycardia. But it doesn't always blunt the response to direct laryngoscopy, so you might still see tachycardia, but that's from your DL and not from the drug itself. Right. Yeah. And then the other question, this is more an ICU question, is a patient being mechanically ventilated in the ICU requires wound debridement twice daily. Each of the following agents would be appropriate for induction of brief general anesthesia except. So nitrous oxide, atomidate, ketamine, methohexadol, and midazolam. Right. So the one, you don't want to use atomidate more than once because right. then you do get into clinical significance. And, you know, back in the day when they would even do atomidate in infusions, you had people who were really getting uh, an increased mortality from the severe adrenal suppression. Interestingly, nitrous oxide doesn't really induce general anesthesia, so that's kind of a funny answer choice there, but, um, but clearly you don't want to use atomidate. Right. Uh, so and we talked about the histamine release. And according to Barish, it's the induction agent of choice for porous patients with cardiorespiratory disease, as well in those situations in which preservation of a normal blood pressure is crucial. I think we use it a lot more in trauma than probably any other setting here. Yep. It's probably where I've used it the most. Uh, I've gotten away from using it in OB, I think more for the nausea and vomiting, and because I think most pregnant women have healthy hearts, so yep. propofol does just fine. Um, and I've gone away from barbiturates too, but that's just me. The other one, and I couldn't find a practice question, but I know that they come up, is the effect of Atomidate on SSEPs. And it's actually interesting because most of the, our induction agents like propofol will decrease the amplitude and increase latency, whereas uh, Atomidate actually increases the amplitude. So it's one of the only ones that increases the amplitude of SSCPs, and it has minimal, minimal increase on latency. Mm. So that's kind of okay. interesting, and it kind of gives a good test question because yeah. you can really differentiate between them. And ketamine definitely increases amplitude as well. So that's uh, interesting that they have that in common. Right. And then, again, Atomidate is associated with a high incidence post-apnosis vomiting, especially when used in combination with opioids. If you're giving like fentanyl and atomidate, it's even worse. And we did a couple questions like that. And we talked about um, the increased mortality in critically ill patients if they're sedated with atomidate, especially on infusions. Um, so for in summary, it's not a huge topic. I don't think you're going to see a huge number of questions about atomidate, but it acts on the GABA receptor. You have hemodynamic stability. There is a lot of pain on injection. You can see myoclonus and post-op nausea vomiting and adrenal suppression. And that's why we don't, we've gotten away from using it. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Jillian. Um, these are two great topics, and we will be back and do another couple uh, soon. Thank you. And now I remembered <laughs> you're going to be actually the first guest oh, that, wow. uh, that we're going to do exciting. random recommendations with. So, uh, Jillian, when you are chatting with your friends this weekend or a resident asks you for something to do to get the mind off of work, what's a random recommendation that you can give to our audience, something to check out? So I'm a big book reader. It's probably my favorite hobby. I read two to three books a week. And in the past year, if I had to pick one book that I just really has stuck with me and is a stunning piece of fiction, it's called Lincoln and the Bardo. Hmm. I don't know if you've read about no, it. but tell the, me more. the author... When he was living in Washington, D.C., 
had gone by a mausoleum and there was like a urban legend that when Lincoln's son Willie died, that's where he was interned until they could take him back home to Illinois. Mm. And that at night, Lincoln would sneak in to the mausoleum and hold Willie's body. Mm. So the whole thing is set. Bardo is like a purgatory. It's I think a Buddhist term for like like a purgatory. And the whole thing is set really in the graveyard. And it's all these spirits who are stuck on earth for whatever reason. They haven't been able to let go from earth for lots of different reasons. And they all have all these different characters from like their life on earth and why they're there. And they all see Lincoln come in and hold Willie. And it's the story of like Lincoln trying to let go and Willie trying to move on. It's, it's brilliant. It's a, it's a really good book. Very cool. That sounds great. I will put it on my list for sure. And, I'm going to go with uh, the same recommendation I gave up front. The Death of Anesthesia podcast uh, is my random recommendation. Maybe not so random since it's related to anesthesia, but it's really good. Those guys are doing a great job. That's David Howe over there, the resident at Mass General. And uh, he's had some great guests on, including their program director over there, uh, Dan Sadawi Konefka, and the vice chair for education, who was the previous program director, Keith Baker. So really great guests and a great host in, uh, in David over there. So check it out, depthofanesthesia.com, uh, and let us know what you think. All right, that was fantastic. Um, I know people are really loving these keyword episodes. I get a ton of great feedback on them, so we will continue them. Let us know what you think. Go to ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment. Everybody can learn from what you have to say. You can check out our new logo while you're there. And, of course, you can comment on any of the episodes. And you can reach me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to contribute to the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and make a donation there. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it, and it means a lot. Special thanks to Dr. Dennis Quo for ACRAC original music. He is a superstar. Check out his music at his website, studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.